Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In this very first episode of Facing Up, I am excited to be talking to Lucy Gossage. Now, Lucy was someone I came across when I was a late teen, I just got into triathlon, and there was this lady who was the 12-time Ironman champion. She had done a PhD at Cambridge. She was a doctor. And I was like, this this is a pretty cool lady. It's bizarre, the twists of fate, that I am now talking to Lucy. She is an oncologist, which is a word when I first came across her. I didn't know what it meant. And now it has deep relevance to me. But far more importantly than that, Lucy, you're now a friend. I'm very excited to be discussing a number of different challenges with you, those that you faced as a professional triathlete, the challenges you face as a as an oncologist, those difficult conversations and decisions that you've got to make as a consultant. And I'm really looking forward to talking about the organization that you set up, 5K Your Way, that gets people with a cancer diagnosis more active, fitter, and part of a supportive community that helps people before, during, and after treatment. For me, exercise was just the most powerful thing as I went through chemotherapy, surgery, and radiotherapy, and so I'm really excited to talk more about 5K Your Way. Lucy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Facing Up podcast. Thank you for joining. Oh, it's always it's fun chatting with you, Luke. It's mutual. <laughs> so I thought we could talk about challenges that you've faced and maybe opportunities that have kind of tied in with them. And I kind of see those perhaps the challenges of being a pro triathlete or perhaps no longer being a tro- pro triathlete, challenges of being an oncologist and then sort of something a bit more topical to now, thinking about the challenges that COVID has presented us as a nation and you particularly as a doctor. So to start with, what was the greatest challenge of being a pro triathlete? The greatest challenge was actually, well, there, there were two. One was asking for my pro licence and the, the other, I think this was the biggest challenge, was asking to go part-time at work. And the reasons they were so hard was, I think, firstly, by asking to go part-time, I was admitting to myself that I thought I was good enough to justify going part-time and there was an enormous part of me that just thought everyone would laugh at me. I'd applied for this job in Cambridge, I was working in Cambridge, I was doing a PhD, the guy who'd employed me was this very, very academic non-sporty guy and I felt (laughs) like I was letting him down. He was actually unbelievably supportive and but I think that yeah I think the biggest challenge was was admitting to myself that I, I thought I was good enough to justify it go and ride my bike around the world <laughs> which, which sounds awesome but what was there a moment that you either realized you were going to commit to it or something that pushed you into doing it or was there a moment that you decided to take on the challenge and say yeah I'm bam, doing it no so I think I I got good at triathlon when I moved to Cambridge to do a PhD so I, I started triathlon when I was an oncology registrar so training doctor and then I moved to Cambridge to do to do this PhD and it was it was moving for all the wrong reasons it was moving to a place because it was prestigious on paper it was moving because I could not because I wanted to and then I got there and I hated absolutely hated the first year I was ignored by my boss my not the guy who that I just mentioned by someone else and I didn't I was in a lab I wasn't seeing patients I didn't really have any job satisfaction I didn't have any purpose from what I was doing and so I think that well that was when I started to to train rather than exercise and then over the first couple of years of the PhD I started to get quite good and did well as an age grouper and then I I think the decision to, to race professional was was relatively easy because it was a case of I could do very well as an age grouper and have quite an easy life or I could challenge myself and come last which is what I thought would happen but you know and not do so well but be racing much better people and, and get the best out of myself so that yeah. was quite a, relatively an easier decision I think. That's, it's really interesting when you say going back to the reasons why you moved to Cambridge. And I think this could be said for a number of like prestigious universities and indeed sort of doing PhDs in themselves. It's something I've struggled with of this idea of reaching the pinnacle. This is how I see it, at least, mm. or I, how I saw it, 
of you know it's somehow reaching the pinnacle of academia and that's kind of like the ultimate intellectual confirmation and maybe i'm just speaking you know from my own insecurities here but there's definitely something i felt of like it's something i now think about a lot more and how important it is to do things that are really want to do them ourselves rather than these other the status the prestige how society might perceive us if we've got that phd etc so i i think that's one of the the biggest things that triathlons taught me and it's so it's quite interesting when i went to ask my boss that i could go part-time i i was so worried about it and i sent him an email on the friday like you know friday evening i knew that he'd see it and i'd arranged a meeting with him on the monday because I knew if I just did it face to face, I'd just go, I'm not making it. But I, I put a very coherent email together and put my points as to why I wanted to do it and why I thought it was worthwhile. And I was, one of the things I was saying was that I thought it would make me a better doctor. And honestly, I thought they were empty words when I was writing them. I didn't really <laughs> think it would make me a better doctor. <laughs> the BS sensor kind of started twitching quite a bit. <laughs> but it, it so has. And I think one of the biggest things it's taught me is not to do things just because you can, but to do things because you really want to. And I moved to Cambridge because I was good enough to, you know, I was, I'd been an undergrad there and it wasn't about going to Cambridge, but on paper, I, you know, I moved there because I could and I didn't have any other reason to do it. Now I would never make a decision for that reason. And I, you know, I always kind of think when it comes to the big decisions in life, if you're not thinking, yes, I really want to do it, then probably the answer is no. And then, and I think that's such a valuable life lesson. And it has. It's changed my whole career because I now work, I'm now working full time temporarily, but I, I work part time. I have I do a job that I really love. I'm not just climbing the career ladder to get to the top. I'm climbing a ladder that I want to be climbing. And that's such a valuable lesson that I would never have had without triathlon. I think it, it's interesting you've come through that learning that lesson through triathlon. And I feel like my cancer diagnosis has kind of really woke Mm. open my eyes up to it because I think you know it's good at science I'm sure like you know like you at school and therefore I thought right so I'm a scientist and so I did biology and then I was thinking of biology PhDs and plant science and because I was good at it and because I thought this is important but what I found is I love hearing people's stories and it actually was very difficult for me and I'm still accepting that as actually that's legitimate that doesn't mean I'm kind of intellectually lazy to be doing this maybe that sounds very odd to no, you and it's your, no but I you know my PhD was on related to kidney cancer it was on the VHL gene it was so such basic science I had there was zero passion and I've never minded staying late at work sometimes you think my, I, you know I wanted to go out on my bike and you, you resent a bit but you Fundamentally, I, I, I've never, ever resented working hard in the hospital because I'm passionate about it. And I never, as a triathlete, like I did some crazy sessions, some horrible things. I made so many sacrifices. I missed weddings. I missed parties. I missed dinners out. I missed family get-togethers. But I didn't re- resent any of it because I was passionate about it. Whereas in my PhD, when I had to go into the lab on a Saturday or on Christmas Eve to feed my cells, or I'd resent every single minute of a weekend or a sunny day that I was spending in the lab because I had no passion for it, and that's such a valuable lesson. Do you know why you finished the PhD? Why did I finish it? I I, I nearly always finish something I've started. I felt like I, I, you know, I was funded by Cancer Research UK. I owed it to them to finish it. I think when I went part-time, I owed it to my supervisors and actually one of the nicest comments I got from from him was how much better it went, how much, basically my PhD went a lot better when I went part-time because I had the balance and I didn't resent it. I'm glad I did finish it because the best bit of the PhD in terms of my learning but also, you know, producing something that's valuable was in the final year which is what a lot of people say so yeah yeah, I'm proud I've never not finished a race and there's no way I wasn't going to finish my PhD but and I I think that's another lesson isn't it like you know I've always known I'm stubborn and persistent but just because you're not enjoying something doesn't mean that you should quit it I guess you just need to make sure you're finishing it for the right reasons yeah I would have I would have had lots of Lots of guilt if I'd not finished it. I would have felt that I would have wasted the time that I'd put into it so far. I, I did need it for my career in terms of jobs and, and things. Uh, and I think it says a lot about someone as well if you give up just because something's not going as well as you want it to at the start. I think that's, that's really interesting. And I definitely would have wholeheartedly agreed with you 
until quite recently. But now I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm more like, because time is, is precious, you know, doing something that really isn't fulfilling and just completing something which is utterly unset, unfulfilling for the sake of completing it, I'm now much more self-critical about, you know, mm. self-aware about why I would be doing that. I'm kind but of, I would say know. it wasn't unfulfilling. So okay. um, the first year was undescribably hard and I hated it. The second year was a bit better. I know it ended up taking me five years because I went part-time. Actually, the two and a half years when I was working part-time, I kind of enjoyed it because it was very flexible. It was the best. I, I had complete drive over what I was doing. I'd evolved the project away from protein science into something that was much closer to patients and more relevant and I was racing professionally at the same time so that actually the the last two and a half years I I really enjoyed it and I also kind of saw the PhD as much more than just the papers that I produced Uh, and I think the way that it's changed me and I I have a lot of guilt because it was a huge amount of Cancer Research UK's funding but you know you don't fund someone expecting to cure cancer it's all every you know it's a tiny little bit of a jigsaw Mm. but I think a lot of the learnings that I made from the PhD are letting me do different stuff with my career. So I, in, in lots of ways, I'm very grateful for that horrendous first year because I'd certainly never become a professional triathlete and I'd okay. never come off the career ladder <laughs> had I not that, had that horrendous first year. I really want to ask as well, like, was it difficult changing your identity or, did that, or, or was that actually one of the easiest bits? In what sense? Going from... Yeah, a doctor and a PhD student into a full-time triathlete, or you know, full-time triathlete, part-time PhD student to full-time triathlete. Was that difficult as an identity um, shift? Yeah, you know, I found I found it hard going to do my PhD because I, like, as a doctor, as, as I was a registrar, which you know, I was, you're a fairly, relatively senior doctor. You're making decisions not independently, but you will often, you know, do a lot of stuff with patients on your own. And, and I felt I was useful. And every day, no matter how bad it was or whatever had happened, you'd go home and you'd know you'd been useful. Whereas in the PhD, I, and that's why I started to train, because I'd, I'd get to the end of the week, I'd be like, what have I achieved? I've achieved nothing. I haven't even enjoyed it. It's all right achieving nothing if you've, not, you know, if you've enjoyed it. And then, yeah, then that's, that's why I started to train. So I, I think that transition was probably harder. The becoming a professional athlete, not really, because I never really, I never, A, I never really felt like a professional athlete, and B, I set out to do it for one year. So I only had two and a half years full time, but I, it, it was only one year, when, you know, that's what I'd kind of agreed to initially. So I felt like it was a sabbatical and it wasn't, you know, I always felt like a fraud, and, and I still do to some extent. A fraud as a pro athlete, you mean? Yeah, I, I still look back and, you know, I don't really believe it's me. And, and certainly at that time when I started to become good and, and become a bit more recognised, I always, it, it wasn't me. It wasn't, that wasn't really my identity. My identity was the Lucy that my friends know, the chopper who's always got oil marks on her legs and never wears matching socks and always falls off a bike. And Those not in the know in cycling, those are all horrendous crimes. You know? <laughs> I mean, that needs some contextual data there. If, I mean, if I you was want a to. professional triathlete. <laughs> I was cycling around with running mini mouse ears on my helmet for about, a good part of it. I, 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 I was a yeah. I, I I felt my identity was a, a chopper, and I, I was quite happy with that. You know, I liked being that person who just rocked up and gave it a go, and yeah. Got a few people on the way. <laughs> I've also I've got to ask because I'm sure some people will be wondering. You haven't mentioned the races being hard as a challenge. What? It's a very different sort of challenge, but what gets you through races? What gets you through that pain and the fatigue or the hard sessions? So I think races are hard, but if you're in a good mental place, then you're ready. And, and that was that was actually sometimes the battle, getting myself in a mental place where I could, I was ready to race really hard. I think the, the hardest the hardest part as a pro was pro, is probably when you're injured and you're training but you're not really sure why you're training. And I guess that's what a lot of people are going through at the moment with COVID. I think for me, the darkest time as a pro was definitely when I broke my collarbone. And that was eight weeks before before the World Championships. But it was I knew it was my last World Championships. I, had, I was going back to work two weeks after. I'd already gone from one year to two years to two and a half years. I had to go back to work. And breaking my collarbone at that point felt 
felt insurmountable and I actually kept trying to tell myself it's just a collarbone you know I had a friend who had a spinal cord injury I you know I, I kept saying it's not cancer it's just a blowing collarbone but that that didn't help telling myself mm-hmm. it could be worse and I think that's that's quite an interesting lesson as well yeah the challenges of racing I you know, I'm, not, I'm quite proud. I, I never didn't finish. I had lots of bad races. I walked once in Kona. Many do. I, many do. <laughs> yeah, of course there were tough bits, but I think, I think I'm quite mentally strong. I think probably looking back now, and I'm a bit more distance from it, what I'm most proud of for my career is, is never having not finished. And, and probably the days where I wasn't winning and I wasn't doing what I wanted to, but I, I stuck in there. And generally, I like to think that I always was a bad loser, a bad loser, a good loser. <laughs> you know, I was finished with a smile and was was quite gracious. And I think that's that's what I'm most proud of, probably. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. I I am intrigued to sort of poke this collarbone a little bit more. And <laughs> so, but with the collarbone, you had it seems like it could have really derailed you, but you actually finished ninth in the end mm-hmm. at the World Championships, which was your best result. So somehow you turned this round from like what should have been game over by a lot of people's standards. You know, what what was the mental process that you went through to get into the state where you wanted to race again? I had the crash and I'd actually not that long ago broken up with a boyfriend as well. Maybe I think it was like, it was like two or three weeks after I'm on UK and yeah so it must have been a month anyway there's quite a lot going on going on and initially I was devastated I thought that was it I thought that was game over and that my career was just because I I, I didn't realize I'd carry on racing after going back to work so in my head all the way to 2016 Kona was the finale of my tri-career and then I was going back to work and that that was it so initially I was devastated and then then I, I think, and this is quite interesting as a as a doctor actually, because I went to see a surgeon and he gave me all the information and he basically said, look, I can I can repair it. You don't need it repairing. It will it will repair itself. It will take twelve weeks to repair. That you definitely can't race Kona if you don't have it fixed. If you do have it fixed, you'll probably rip it out going swimming or something. <laughs> There's absolutely no guarantee that you'll be able to race Kona. In fact, I don't think you will be able to race. But anyway, he gave me all the information and then mm. he let me make the decision. And mm. I always thought that patients would want to make their own decisions and be given mm. the information mm. to make their own decision. And I didn't. I wanted him to tell me whether I should have it repaired or not. And I found that mm. so, so hard because I felt like he was a surgeon. Like I didn't know what the right answer was. But anyway, I got it fixed. And then I, had, I think I had a, a few dark weeks where I was kind of going through the motions of, well, I know I was, I was doing a lot of training, but not really <laughs> believing that I could go. A lot of indoor biking. But then, then I, and actually it was blessing in disguise because it took all the pressure off. And I think yeah. having gone through that was in, in no small part why I carried on racing when I did go back to work. I guess when you feel like when you've been through a challenge and managed to come out and feel like you've done yourself justice, despite the circumstances not being in your favour. that can... I think I think three things came out of that. So firstly, <laughs> firstly, that you can race well with inadequate preparation. Like I did a lot of training, but it was so unspecific. Secondly, I liked being the underdog and that collarbone took off any pressure and mm going back to work in my head would take off any pressure and thirdly that I could in just really enjoy racing just for the sake of it and there's no re- that was my big reason for carrying on there was no reason to stop I think it's amazing the races I've enjoyed most are the ones where I didn't expect I wasn't putting pressure on myself to do well they, they're like the ones where you kind of think you're going to get smashed and mm. if it goes better than that you're like oh yeah I'm I'm up with these guys like Go me, you know, like, and pushing harder because of that, you know. Well, I guess because you're not pushing to sort of almost run away from someone, you're, I don't know, my attitude is, you know, when you've got a really big target to sort of attack, I suppose. Yeah, I think all my best races, I've not been, I've not been focused on anybody else. I've not been focused on the results. I've just been focused on getting the best out of myself and generally that means enjoying it as well I think that's what I did in in Kona but I know I remember very clearly at one point in the race I was running along the Queen K which is the high the highway and it must have been about 
50 miles into the run. I was just going past too far. I was thinking, I'm going to end up like six or something. And then the legs, my legs, were, the wheels fell off in the last 10K. So I didn't keep catching a bit. But I just, I just remember I was just racing. I just couldn't believe what I was doing. And that's, I didn't go in, you know, I came off the bike, I don't know where, 20th or something. But that, it didn't matter. Whereas in previous years, I might have been like, I'm 20th, I've got to finish in the top 10. And mm. it, it, there was just no, that it just wasn't yeah. even on my radar. So I want to take this into a slightly different direction. And actually, when you were talking about, you know, you went to the surgeon, you said kind of like, what, you know, what would you recommend? Make, you know, you'd want, you, want, you wanted him to make the decision, it sounded like. I kind of want to talk a little bit more about, I guess, your role as an oncologist and I guess contrasting that with my position, you know, at, and I've been a patient and perhaps if I'd been Nottingham, we'd have met each other. <laughs> this, and also in, in this bit, like, and actually throughout this conversation, I'd love, you know, if you want to challenge me and ask me questions and fire some stuff back, absolutely go for it. So, but I've been like really, one of the things that was on my mind was like, what's, what should the patient-consultant relationship look like? Mm-hmm. Who who should decide? Who should ask the questions? What should the power dynamic look like? Mm-hmm. These are things I've kind of wondered about, and I'm really interested in your perspective. I think it's really hard. I, I think for every patient, it's completely different what patients want from their doctor. I actually, so I do a lot of work with, as you know, I treat sarcomas and germ cell tumors, testicular cancers. So I, I treat a lot of younger patients and I find those relationships can be the most challenging. I, I never forget, actually, this is it's quite an interesting story that when I, when I started as an oncology registrar in 2006, so a long time ago shows how long <laughs> how triathlon has protracted my training <laughs> that's an aside but I remember about a month into into the job a young lady came in was admitted with an infection her, her white cells her infection fighting cells were low and so I went to to see her as the on-call registrar and started doing what I normally do and then she turned around to me and she said you're Harriet's sister aren't you and Harriet's my sister and I was completely taken aback and she had she had a, a very aggressive kidney cancer and I got to know her really well over the next I, don't, I can't remember a year and a half or something and and then she died and I that I found that so hard because because it was the first time I'd I'd only just started doing oncology but it was the first time I'd I'd met someone or worked with someone who in another life might have been a friend and we'd gone to the same school and she knew my she wasn't friends with my sister but she knew my sister and I found creating that divide between the doctor and the patient because there has to be a divide yeah I felt like she wanted to be my friend I could you can't be at your patient's friends you can get to know them and I think I find it really hard so there are two of us that treat sarcomas and I find it really hard if I'm not the first person to meet the patient because that's the time when you can ask all the interesting questions about what they do in their normal life. You know, right. are they a Still runner? Are they an actor? You know, you get a picture of the person yeah. behind the yeah. patient and it's very hard as a doctor if you walk mm. in two weeks down the line to then ask those questions. It, you can obviously do it, but it's not the same. So each patient is different. But to sort of return to this first question, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite happy yet of like... You know, there's, <laughs> I've deflected. <laughs> you've deflected it very artfully. But okay, to sort of put it in, in different terms, when I was a patient myself, and I guess other times when I've seen a doctor, you know, just generally, it can feel like there's a power dynamic in the room because one person appears to know everything. One person can control your fate as it, you know, it looks like there's this kind of information disparity. It, and I feel that can be quite an intimidating environment to be a patient, right? To, you know, to turn up to a doctor, you've just been, possibly you've just been told you've got a life-threatening illness. You're not feeling, you know, positive or perhaps, you know, high in confidence by any stretch. And then you've got this person who appears to have like an encyclopedic graph. So I, I do, oh, it's amazing. Go it goes back to my psychology, but I generally feel that I do not have that encyclopedic knowledge and that quite often patients know far more than I do and they certainly know more about themselves and their bodies and their you know their blood results and 
I'm quite often intimidated by patients who I think know far more, particularly for really rare and uncommon and common diseases. But also, you know, we have, I don't know how many patients I treat, but you will have known every single date that you've been in with an infection and how low your white cells went and when you were sick and what days. You, but you, you've got a better grip of that than I will have seeing you once every three weeks or maybe a couple of times when you're an inpatient. Patients, I, I like to think times have changed and I think the old kind of paternal doctor-patient relationship has, it should have gone. Okay, um, different question. What's the most important thing that you as a consultant can learn from your patient? Gosh, tenacity, I think. Oh. One of the, there's always a way through something, no matter how hard it is. Oh. People always make lemons, like they, they do, yeah. and they, they and I, I... Lemons or lemonade? Lemonade. <laughs> you know, quite often at the start, when you first meet a family, particularly with a younger person, there might be a lot of anger. It might be directed at us, rightly or wrongly, at the system, at the cancer. And then with time, they find a way through it. And that, that way is very rarely anger. And I think it just show, I think I realized the power of the human spirit because it, when I think of when I think of some of the people that I work with or I'm even you know working with now I can't imagine being in their shoes and still being able to carry on with life but they do and it's not unique it's unique mm. it is it, like every single person does every single family does no matter what happens and mm. I guess when I was reflecting on covid and how that might change and and I think the whole country went through a very similar process and Mm. and had two weeks of kind of anger and adjustment and I'm sure that's ongoing for a lot of people but everyone's finding a way through it. Mm. Okay you answered that question in a way that I wasn't expecting but was super interesting but I still want to ask the counterpart to it which is sort of like what is the most important thing that I as a patient can learn from you? As an oncologist, like what's the most important thing that you can tell me? Do you think there is something? I think our jo- I think the most useful thing that we do is to give information to patients and to their families in a way that they can understand. And that level of information would be completely different to you for someone else your age with a different background or different wishes you know it's not just education it's, it's how much they want to know so we provide that information in a way that they can understand and then we help them make the decisions regarding treatment that are right for them sometimes it'd be very clear-cut what the right treatment is and we would be very strongly recommending that they pursue a certain course of action other times it's very much a grey area and we're weighing up odds and patients are weighing up odds and that's when what's important to patients is really important and some patients will choose potential extension of life at any cost and other patients will choose quality of life and some people will want us to make those decisions for them and other people like I did which I never thought Mm. I would do and other people will want to make the decisions for themselves and, and then you've got the family yeah. members as well so I think all we are really is glorified information givers yeah I think uh, just trying to well you know when you're saying you know so how how on earth do you try and balance quality of life over the possibility of having longer it's 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 a horrible thing to have to look at like look down the barrel of but maybe you wouldn't maybe i don't i don't think anyone knows how they would react and i suspect you didn't until you got told you had cancer you would probably you probably had no idea how you'd react in that adversity and no perhaps, <laughs> never even thought about it at all <laughs> but perhaps you know you might think you'll behave one way if your cancer <laughs> were to come back who knows? Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'd behave if I got a diagnosis. I... Yeah, I, I don't. I try not to think about it very much right now. So, I was wondering. This is something I feel. This is a very personal question from me. Of when I was diagnosed, the outlook seemed incredibly bleak, and I felt I had to create my own hope in that situation. Mm-hmm. I think it probably is surprising most people. I'm still here right now. I'm really, I feel very, very fortunate to be here right now. 
but uh, what I want to ask is how how difficult is it for you when giving advice, when giving information, when giving probabilities, when giving potential outcomes, to hit this balance between what, what I would argue is optimism and realism. Perhaps you actually see it in quite different metrics, but to me, the, the idea of saying, well, optimism, there's maybe some hope in the situation, look at this bit, versus the realism of perhaps this is very, very serious and your odds are generally, given the statistics that we have, given your profile, are not good. How do you balance that? Or do you see it in different terms? I think it's really hard. And it's so from a purely practical point of view, it's really hard deciding whether treating someone with treatment that could in a very small proportion of patients might might create a long duration of good quality of life, but equally might kill them. And that's fundamentally what you're weighing up. So you've got a treatment that could potentially, in a small number of patients, do something good. Most patients, it won't do anything, and some patients, it will kill them. And that, that's really hard. When I, and I don't get it. I've got, I, I definitely don't get it right. Like, when I, I think one of the, so, so we know that if someone is going to die, it's much better if we talk about that earlier. And that, that's, that's a fact. And we actually know that if you bring up palliative care or enhanced supportive care, early patients not only have better quality of life but they also live longer so Um, and that that's that's proven so it i think it's really important to to help patients understand if time is limited we we can never put times on things we can give rough time scales as in it might be months rather than years but that's probably as close as you're going to go but at the same time you don't need to dwell on that and if there is a small chance that patients have long-term survival you can tell you can give patients both sides of that and they can take hold of whatever they want to I think not you know some it's hard having conversations about telling someone that their life expectancy is in all likelihood short that's it's much easier to avoid those conversations um but I, I don't think that does anyone any good because patients and their families make different decisions. If, you know, look at what you're doing with your life. And, and you know, your cancer's, who knows where, you're off treatment, you've been off treatment for a long time. Who knows? But you're living your life very differently because you've you've had cancer. Yeah, I'm not um, doing a PhD. Precisely. And, and <laughs> I don't know, every, everyone's different, but we can't we can't make judgments about what patients want to hear. And it's all too easy to judge people based on their background, their demographic, their age, their education level. And when you do that, so often we're wrong. Interesting. But so it's so ha- hard. Ha- it's so hard. And I've got it wrong sometimes. Yeah. Like, I've, you know, I've. I've yeah. It's tough. <laughs> yeah, we've gone quite deep there. And I kind of <laughs> also, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an incredibly important topic, but it is undoubtedly a difficult topic. One of it, and it's been kind of like, uh, I'm not sure I've had flashbacks as such, but I'm just like, fuck, like, you know, like this, it's because I still feel like it, I'm, I'm in this journey. So, you know, it's sort of. It's just brave for you to, to, and most people would not want to talk about this, certainly not publicly on their own their own podcast. Yeah, I, d- I don't really know what that that says about me. Probably. Um, but what I would say, but, Luke, is you are offering people hope, and I know that perhaps firsthand for some of my patients who are in similar situations to where you were two years ago. That hearing your story and seeing what you're doing is inspiring and is offering hope. And I hear the phrase quite a lot in, you know, people just want to kick the can down the road as long as possible. And actually, if, if you can find other people who are, you're inspiring to, to lots of people, in part because of what you're doing, but because of what you're doing with your background, I think. Okay, so on, on this idea of inspiring and inspiration, which is all about creating change, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is, and one of the things I felt really helped me get through my own treatment was was exercise. And I know that you know you put a lot of time into to, to, to setting up 5K your way, which we'll talk about in hopefully a bit of detail later. But for me, exercise is like such a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And 
I think it probably changed the outcomes in some way or another of the, of the treatment that I, I had. There is an increasing amount of research that's coming out to highlight the importance of exercise, but I think it's still really difficult, right? I mean, it's it's still so difficult if you if you've had a life changing diagnosis that you're going to you know you're going to be going through a really unpleasant treatment of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or surgery. But I guess the question I'm asking, you know, how do you, okay how do you get patients to exercise more? That's the kind of question I'm asking, and I'm. The fact that I can't ask, I'm asking in a very blunt manner shows that I'm not really coming at it from a very good angle right now. But like something that's so powerful, but it's it's not yet commonplace, I suppose, in cancer, cancer treatment. So I think one of the biggest things we can do as um, oncologists or anyone working in cancer is actually just give people permission. And what often seems to happen is that someone's diagnosed with cancer and whoever loves them wants to wrap that person in cotton wool and probably based on based on old wives tales or what oncologists used to say they they tell that person to rest and they make all their cups of tea and they no don't you get up don't you do the vacuuming and um, in bed every day yeah absolutely (laughs) and if I didn't have cancer and I were to lie in my bed every day being brought breakfast in bed made my cups of tea, didn't do anything other than get up to go to the bathroom. Then you'd have like would, a great partner. <laughs> you know, I'd end up physically a mess and mentally a mess. And so actually, I think for, for a lot of people, one of the biggest things we can do is just give permission. And I do a lung cancer clinic and it was one of the most rewarding things I'd do is tell patients and their carers that actually it was okay to go out for a walk. And actually it wasn't just okay. It was probably the biggest thing that they could do that would improve the way that they managed their treatment and how they felt and their tiredness levels. And a month later, they'd come back in, they'd have been doing their walk every day and there'd be, there'd be a new person. And it's, that's such a simple thing. So I think number one, give yeah. permission. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Number two, we need to encourage it because the evidence is evolving but what we what we know is that it makes people feel better it makes people less tired it reduces depressive and anxiety symptoms but actually there's evolving evidence that it impacts on the the cancer's biology as well and certainly in animal models it it slows growth of cancers reduces the their ability to spread and and they do they've done quite kind of cool experiments where they get people running on a treadmill and then take out their blood and their blood will then inhibit growth of cancer cells whereas the people who who just take their blood without running you know doesn't doesn't do anything amazing Um, so so there's accumulating evidence it's low quality at the moment it's not Mm. there but i think because of that, we know it makes people feel better and we know it makes them less tired. If that's all it does, then we should still be telling people about yes. it. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I think it's, I, I did a module on ageing when I was doing my undergrad, you know, biology undergrad. And I think the, the take home from that is very similar to, similar to the take home here. That like, if exercise was a drug and people could make vast amounts of money from it, you know, because they, you could sell it as a pill, it would be heralded as the super mm. drug of the millennia it would be the most incredible thing because of it's you know it's um works on so many different pathways it has you know, so many complementary effects in different parts of the body it's clearly a long time ago since i said biology <laughs> I'm talking about anymore but like it's incredibly potent in so many different ways and usually a drug would just target one tiny part of that pathway and so I feel so maybe it's a sign of the world that we live in, which, you know, that for something to get tested and the money to go into the drug research, you know, which, you know, all the different trials, if a drug company could make money out of exercise, we'd probably be doing more of it, you know, it would be prescribed, it would have been prescribed earlier, you know, like decades ago, because the research would have been done. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, so I've done a, a few talks at conferences. And yeah, I guess there's two points. Firstly, even if all it does is make people feel better, and then that that's not a bad thing. But if it makes it more manageable to get through cancer treatment, that's got to be that's a reason to tell people about it. Mm. There was a point I was going to make. I can't remember. I've lost my train of thought. We'll come back to me. But I think <laughs> that the exercise pill has been has been touted around. I think. Mm-hmm. To some extent, the you know the the exercise oncology field hasn't helped themselves because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very small, low quality studies, and 
as a field, we need to get together and produce. And they're happening, the, you know, the mm-hmm. high quality randomized, randomized trials. But I, th- I think the other thing is it's a lot of healthcare professionals don't include exercise in their lives. And that's the nice thing about 5K your way. When, once they come down and they see what it's about and they see that it's not a running race. Because my biggest barrier when I'm talking to people about it is that they think, well, of course you like running. You're a running professional triathlete. Um, and getting across to them that it's not 5k your way or any you know exercise is not doing a running race there are so many different other ways to be active yeah so that's the kind of topic I want to question I want to ask now of like you know what are the challenges you see in your patients um before they start exercising you know what are the barriers that, that they have you know and what's the best way um what other ways for people to start? You know, how how can those challenges be overcome? You know. So we've um, a friend of mine who's a he's a triathlete, but he's just had um, chemo for testicular cancer, and he's um, he bought a spinning. He's in his he's about fifty, I think. Well, you know, he he is fifty. He's just turned fifty. Um, but he when he was having his chemo, he's in for three lots of five days in hospital to get it. So he bought a spinning bike and he left it on the balcony. Um, and he used it when he was having his treatment. Um, in in hospital, is it? In hospital, yeah. So he was That's in amazing. five days every three weeks. Um, That's incredible. And it, since he's left it there, patients, and, you know, the patient, other patients have just been using it. Um, so we're now, oh. he's now fundraising to get some extra equipment out there on the, we've got this beautiful roof, ter- roof terrace. Um, but I think, um, I think it's really hard. Um, so the people that are sporty, if you tell them that they can exercise, they will always find a way, as you've shown, as my friend has shown, mm. um, as I'm sure I would show if I were in, ever in that situation. I think um, for people who aren't sporty, um, particularly people who are having, so thinking of some of the treatments that I use, you you might be having chemotherapy for six months, then have massive surgery, perhaps some radiotherapy, then some more chemotherapy it's really important that we early on advocate movement and Mm. maybe not exercise per se, but being active because otherwise it's all too easy to just sit there and play PlayStation for six months. Yeah. And I guess um, how, you know, if patients who haven't come from a background of exercise and this is a conversation I had with um, the Teenage Cancer Trust in, in Cambridge, they were saying, you know, just how difficult it was for people who don't come from a background of exercise to start exercising. Have you had any success? You know, and how? And if there has been success, you know, what did you do to sort of um, uh, help them into this into into a new pattern, a new lifestyle? I suppose, in part. I mean, it, it it's hard. It's it's. I think it's it's really hard. Um, to incorporate changes when someone's embarking on on treatment like that and I guess I should just you know most people listening won't be cancer experts most cancer treatment is not like that most cancer treatment is far more manageable and that's you know that what I just mentioned is is an extreme um so I guess for a lot of people with cancer they might have maybe six months of treatment and then hopefully they will depending on the aims of their treatment but they will um go back to a normal life and that's when they have there is this enormous teachable moment and um and we talk there you know it's well known when someone actually when someone thinks they've got cancer but they don't that can stimulate enormous life shifts um in how they live their life and maybe coronavirus is in effect a cancer for the whole world and it's stimulating that change um it's been uprooting forms hasn't it Say again. It's been uprooting norms. Yeah, and it's making everyone evaluate what they want for life mm. in the same way that finding a breast lump that isn't cancer for a little bit of time you think you've got breast cancer, um, that can stimulate enormous changes and make people, you know, so often people say, and it, you know, I've, I've changed, I've realised I don't like my job, I don't want to do this PhD, mm. I don't like my husband, I want to spend more time with my kids, I want to go running, I, you know, whatever you want, I want to learn the mm. piano, I want to yeah they, they, they stimulate that so so i think that's that's quite easy to stimulate changes and there are you know there are lots of you went to the care program um 
yes. in Nottingham, which do, does um, exercise classes for people living with and after cancer. And that, you know, a lot of people who join the care program, so Lizzie you met, I think she does yes. a lot more exercise now after yeah. her diagnosis. Robin, all yeah. of those people do a lot more and after. such a range of ages as well. That struck me. It wasn't just sort of, you know, fit young things. It was mm. everyone from probably... 20 to 75 or something yeah and I I guess that you know I so as I that does I I was really surprised when I when I saw what the care program did because I couldn't understand how such a diverse age demographic Mm. and educational but you know everything demographic could work particularly Mm. in an exercise class how could I go and do exercise with a 70 year old and chemotherapy but it works. Yeah. It does yes. work. And I mean, you've seen the friendships that come out of that um, from 5K your way. So, mm. so that works really well after cancer treatment or for people on treatment. I still don't know how to do it for people who are having long-term chemotherapy. And I, I've blown in blazing at the start. And that's completely inappropriate for a lot of patients because they're going through so much in their head. The last time they want is some hyperactive oncologist telling them oh and by the way you've really got to stay fit during this as well yeah just something else like you to feel rubbish about when you don't achieve it so these are the side effects la 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 sign your consent form oh and by the way you've really got to stay active because it's going to make you feel better whoa i don't know i don't know where the right time is and it differs for everybody i'm sure yeah tell us a bit more about the 5k your way because that has been perhaps the way that you've seen an opportunity i love this whole framing of challenges you know where's the challenge where's the opportunity in the challenge what could be a challenge that seems kind of too difficult to take on and you know, to try and get people more active you've said actually i with an amazing team can do something about this so 5k away oh, i'm so i'm so passionate about this and probably more proud of it than all my iman wins there was actually one patient who gave me the idea and he was he was a young man i hadn't been involved in his care it was when i was a, a registrar about three years ago maybe he'd finished his treatment he'd been theoretically and hopefully cured of his cancer but he'd lost everything in that process he'd put on huge amounts of weight he'd lost his friends he'd lost his job and I was just so struck and I literally I hadn't been involved in him I just met him once or twice and and spoke to the the guy that was treating him and I just thought we've we've got to do something we can't just cure people and then just leave them with nothing and I love part run and I think it's it's just you can't be sad after a part run such a brilliant event and well, let's just try it. If if no one comes, no one comes. What? And that goes back to kind of learning not to fear failure. Which I wouldn't have done it without triathlon because I would have always thought it probably won't work. Maybe a bit like you might with this podcast. Maybe no one will listen. So what? Yeah, I've definitely had nice going chats. Yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't matter, does it? No, so, I've, as long as we're enjoying this conversation. Thanks for putting up with me. So. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, that was an aside. So so we thought we'll try it in June and try it once in Nottingham and just kind of put up some little posters around the hospital. So many people, the first, maybe 70 people or something, a lot of supporters. Um, And uh, yeah, it was just such an uplifting Saturday morning um, Mm. that we thought we'll do it the last Saturday of every month. And then through the power of social media, which I know does a lot of harm, but also does a huge amount of good, People, I guess, a little bit because of my triathlon platform, people heard about it and a, a friend in Cambridge started a group in, in the October. And then we had, I think, I think we had eight in the January 2019 and then 16 in February and 24 in March. And then all of a sudden, Gemma and I were like, oh, my God, we've actually got a thing and we don't have anyone to, we're just. Yeah, that was like doubling and doubling. Yeah, yeah, and with hindsight, it grew far too quickly. Uh, and we, yeah, it was literally just Gemma, who's employed by Move, you know, who's CEO Move Charity, and me doing it in my spare time. And it wasn't, it, it probably did grow too quickly. But at the same time, you, you become a name, you become a brand, and that gives you more potential to grow. So it's really simple. I haven't even said what it is, but it's just. Um, <laughs> It's just an initiative to encourage anyone affected by cancer, so not just patients, their families, their kids, whether they've got cancer at the moment or they've had cancer, and the healthcare professionals working in cancer services. And I think that's quite a big part of it as well, to come down to park runs the last Saturday of every month, walk, jog, run, cheer or volunteer, and then go for a coffee afterwards. 
I think that probably makes the medical professional seem a bit more human. Just returning to this, I'm trying to think of my consultant and I felt like I could operate, you know, with a good background in science, operate on a similar level to him. But I feel like if you can see your consultant in like, you know, sweating and running gear, then they're just another human being at that point, which then just makes it that much easier to have conversations, like very frank conversations, like because you're not trying to, there are less pretenses, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it goes both ways because I've learned a lot from the people that come who aren't my patients, so I don't treat them. But I hear the other side of being someone who's been affected by cancer, and that's taught me low. And I hear the other side of the hospital, you know, what bits annoy them and what bits they're grateful. And it's not what you think. And I have definitely become a better doctor by hearing that side of things. And so it can go both ways, I think. I have to say, final weekend of January, when I started cycling from Bristol to Beijing via the UK, (laughs) you know, went to the home of the 5K Your Way Park Run. And the vibe, the positivity, the atmosphere was, it was so uplifting. It was so exciting. And one of the things I'm hoping, you know, with the the cycle riders to try and rewrite the narrative of what's possible with cancer. But that's what 5K Your Way does as well, I feel, from my perspective, that Right now, we're not in a world where people say, oh, if you've got cancer, you can go out running and, you know, do a 5K, whether that's walking or jogging or running. But you see this community of people who are doing it and it's exceptional right now, but it always doesn't seem exceptional because everyone's just chatting and they're having coffee. And yet they're actually bucking the narrative of what perhaps sadly right now is common amongst cancer patients. Yeah, and I think what what struck me was that support groups are generally sitting in a room with crap coffee and crap digestive biscuits. <laughs> and, you know, 5K away, people don't just go and sit and talk about their cancer. They do sometimes. Mm-hmm. They know that they can do. They get friendships. They develop friendships so that they can have those conversations. But I think one of the biggest things is they, they know that everyone there gets it. And, yeah, I mean, you met Sue, didn't you? The incredible Sue who came on the back of your tandem. And she, I would I love to have her on this. She, well, why don't you ask her? I'm sure I will. Lo- I will. I'm, sure she, I'm sure she'd love to. But she is the most incredible lady. And some of the stuff that comes out of her mouth, she has no idea how much it means to me. But just because she sums up what what we wanted to achieve with 5K Your Way. And if she was the only person that was helping, then I'd still be happy. And I I wouldn't resent any of the Saturdays I've spent going through spreadsheets and answering emails or whatever. and, And she was not a runner. She's in her 70s. She was diagnosed with bowel cancer. She was in the hospital. She tells the story of how, and she's not exaggerating, how she couldn't even get out of bed to go to the toilet. And she saw the flyer and she said, I'm going to do that when I get out of here. And she turned up and she started by walking and then she started walking and running. And now she runs. And one of the most moving things she said was she feels it gives her something positive once a month to work towards. Cancer, so her life is, she's on treatment and it revolves from, treatment to treatment to scan and having something positive mm-hmm. to work for mm-hmm. to work towards is is that that gives her a focus and I think she's back on treatment on a different treatment now which I I think it, I think it's probably I think from the sounds of it it's quite it's tough but she's still going out running and she said she feels that she can't be it can't be killing her if she's still going out running mm. and whether or not that's right or wrong if that's what she feels she's just amazing she's such an inspirational lady and there are so many Sue's out there mm-hmm. who don't Absolutely. know that they who don't know that they can live and I guess it goes back to your can live and that I think that's why when I heard about you and and what you wanted to do it just was exactly what we were trying to achieve with 5k to find an avenue for people to live their lives actively despite a cancer diagnosis. Uh, absolutely. I think a lot of control is taken away. When it feels like so much control is taken away when you get a cancer diagnosis. And there is. But there are still things that each individual can do to make their life a bit better. And that might not be even running 5K or walking 5K, but there are going to be things, you know, maybe it's like, you know, Setting yourself the challenge of walking up the stairs or getting out of bed or listening to an audio book rather than just watching mindless rubbish on the TV because that's going to make a positive impact in your life. You know, that's what Can Live is all about, really. But it's so similar in ethos to 
Yeah, and the point I was going to make that I forgot has just come back to me. So when I do these talks, what <laughs> it really frustrates me that you Google complementary therapies, so something that can be used alongside treatments, and you'll find acupuncture and Reiki and God knows what, all this stuff with zero evidence. And exercise yeah. has got so much more evidence than anything. Yeah. It's not listed. It's not listed on Cancer Research UK. It's not listed on well, no. It's not listed anywhere. And it's, I think we have to change that because we owe it to patients to at least bring it up and say it's going to make you feel better. And actually, we think it's probably going to make your, you know, your, you manage your treatment and potentially slow your cancer as well. Yes, I think that's one of the biggest challenges or most important and biggest challenges in the cancer, public health cancer space this, this decade. And hopefully it won't be next decade as well. But, you know seeing that shift into you know what is the default that a consultant will offer you know cancer research uk can considers effective yeah and i think so one of the things that healthcare professionals say about why they struggle to talk about exercise is partly because they didn't do it themselves but also if there aren't places to signpost patients to and the reason 5k your way works is because we are just jumping on the back of the best public health initiative the uk's ever the world's ever seen part yeah. of that, and we're lucky that Tom Williams, the CRO, and Chrissy Wellington are very supportive of us. But it doesn't have to be running. There are some cool uh, CrossFit groups for people living with an after cancer. There, are, I think, just any kind of active, so all the care program there are, that provides active. So you're getting the physical benefits from exercise with the psychological benefits of a peer support network, and they're yeah there aren't enough of those. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean like track stock as well, particularly Trek, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, can live as people people with cancer and i should make the full disclosure that both 5k away and trexcott are charities that british beijing are delighted to support but <laughs> that's absolutely out in the open we've already had such an interesting chat lucy but before we finish i want to just ask a little bit about covid because it is so topical we had a conversation when i was still in central europe before i came back and you said you were really I can't quite, can you remember the word you used? It was some, It was more than nervous. You, I think you said you were scared about what could happen. How has it been for you as a doctor? What have the challenges been both to you kind of being able to support your patients, perhaps with the challenges there, and then also how have you managed to maintain your own sanity or take the best out of the situation? So I, it's been nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. So I think <laughs> I was... <laughs> I was on annual leave. I, w- I was imagining the worst. And, I, you know, it's very easy, isn't it, when you're reading the, the newspapers and you're watching the news every two hours. And, and my biggest fear as an oncologist was that the hospitals would be flooded. We wouldn't be able to treat patients. And actually, I think Nottingham is very lucky where I work. So we, ha- we are still treating patients. Normally, we've got full capacity. All the decisions that we're making about treatments are based on what's right for the patient in terms of the risk is probably altered because of covid but not because we don't have capacity to treat patients so severe was touch wood false and didn't come to fruition challenges well i i'm working full time at the moment which again i wow. think is a <laughs> i think it's a blessing because it's made me realize this is not the way for a sustainable long-term oncology career so I'm, I'm okay. grateful that I've had this opportunity because I do, I, you know, I think you have to be honest about what is right for you. And for me, five days as an oncologist takes too much else out of my life. And I, I don't think I'm the best oncologist. I, it wouldn't be sustainable for me to do this and be a good oncologist. And yes, yeah, so it's not been as bad as I hoped. I think the hardest thing for me, so we're doing a lot of stuff over the telephone, which is really hard, particularly the difficult conversations. I find having difficult conversations behind a face mask, standing two metres away is really hard. But I think that the hardest thing is putting myself in the place of some of my patients who, you know, cancer is just a whole, a whole lot shitter at the moment. You know, you're not allowed visitors in hospital as you know all too well, you can't do what you want to do with your lives. People on treatment are having to isolate very carefully. You know, a tough time's made a whole lot tougher. And I find yeah. that quite hard to think about. I was immensely, having the support of like family and friends come in and visit me in the ward meant so much. And so to, to think that that's not possible right now, make something which is for probably nearly everyone, you know, the toughest experience of their life to make it that much tougher and lonely. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I just, I can't, 
I can't even bear to think about it. And, and I also can't bear to think about, and this is, you know, lots of people, but that people who do only have a few months left to live, who are living it with bloody COVID, stopping them do what they want to do. And that just, that's just so unfair. I have this anger at, for, for them that they're stuck in this situation. And even, yeah, you know, I, 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 yeah, we've written letters saying, you know, don't stop this this person if they're traveling, but right. where can they go? Yeah. You know, what can yeah. they do? Yeah. Nothing's open. Yeah. Well, lots of people would be scared to see them anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's the bit that I'm finding hardest, is just thinking of what it must be like. Yeah. It's, it's so difficult. I... The one bit in that sentence I kind of was like, you said unfair, and I'm just surprised you used the word fair or unfair, because to me, I, I'm not sure fairness ever comes into anything these days. I just... Um, or maybe I, I'm just... I just no, I, you know, I, I think people deal with cancer, and they do, but to have to deal with it in the current climate is just... That just, like, you know, oh, it just, I just, I just cannot imagine how, you know, I, I, I said, you said, what do you love your patients? Tenacity. And I kind of have learned that people deal with what, you know, the poisons that we give them and the, the whatever they're told that they is going to happen to them for however long. And they deal with uncertainty. And, but to, to go through, and, and cancer takes away so much, it takes away control. But then COVID takes away any little bit of anything that might allow them to have a semblance of normality and i i do oh yeah i got it makes it makes me angry so god imagines god only imagines how angry it makes anyone who's actually going through it and their families yeah i i guess i i, I have to say from my own experience <laughs> you i completely hear what you're saying and uh this, this has got quite weighty i just now feel that anger is such an unhelpful emotion because it if it's because it usually does i'm not sure when it doesn't it stops you from then making the most of what you do have right now and so i don't think i was ever angry that i was diagnosed or my brother died they were like absolutely shit things to happen but i just don't think it's a helpful attitude because it doesn't mean that you get more time if you're angry and you rage against the world like the situation is what it is and if you've got three months left to live that is shit but how are you still going to make the most of that time so it is the best three months that you can have within all the constraints that are still there and and do you know what luke i don't think many of my patients are angry <laughs> I think I'm angry on their their behalf, and not just their behalf, the behalf of everyone. That's really. I, I guess that's what I. That's you know what do I find hard about that current climate okay. is putting myself in in the people I work with shoes. Most of them are most of them aren't angry, or don't seem. I know some of them are, mm. um, but I I think for. So I think oncology. I think the NHS is adapting. We are making positive changes that you know would normally take years to come to fruition and they're just happening like that which is great i don't think phone appointments are the way forward for most things i think they are for a lot of things so i'm sure we'll move over to those but i think there's a huge amount to be said for face-to-face conversations and for getting to know people as people as you as you said rather than a face over skype okay and maybe to wrap up with we need a bit of positivity we've we've gone quite deep (laughs) we have gone quite deep and one of the themes that i'm hoping these young podcasts will generally have is one of of positivity and there is so much that you do embodying in positivity but also you know through 5k you're enabling positivity but tell us about one thing that you're really loving that you haven't done before because of COVID. So I haven't touched on this, but you brought it up maybe talking, I think in your introduction about challenges for retirement from okay. being a professional triathlete. Right. And, and actually, I think COVID is, is what I needed to help me adjust to being normal, in inverted commas, because who wants to be completely normal? But um, <laughs> it's taken away any semblance of training. So I'm still exercising a lot. And I, I've been loving my cyclocross bike just yeah. to, because I, I feel like I'm working full time. So I only have two days off a week now. It's been glorious weather. I need to make the most of it. I need to go mm. back to work refreshed and 
going out and riding my road bike on the roads I know didn't seem that enjoyable. So mm. I thought, well, why am I doing that with my weekends? So I take myself off on my cyclocross bike and I go down bridleways and bits of, you know, within within a loop that I would normally do in three hours on a road bike. And it takes five hours and you're seeing back paths that, that you'll never see. Um, and I, you know, I think it's just helping me come off that training treadmill and mm. learning slowly to exercise I, I think- purely for fun rather than training i feel so much context is needed for that last like two minutes because they're gonna be (laughs) i'm not really training anymore you know uh, my usual three hour route is taking me five hours you know i'm I'm, I'm easing off i'm backing away (laughs) i think well context is required i I dare not think about what it was before but i i guess i'm not i'm not (laughs) i'm not i'm not doing anything with any metrics and i think you know, I'm not swimming. I'm not getting. I'm not setting an alarm for five o'clock. I feel like COVID is forcing me to become a more normal person, and it's long enough that which I was really struggling to step away from becoming a professional triathlete. Um, hey, yeah, um, I did want to. So that's a gratitude. That's a that's a blessing. And I've grown some vegetables in the garden, which is also oh, right. quite cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Your 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 sound. You you could pass pass for anyone else now growing vegetables. <laughs> going for five hour rides striking <laughs> yeah. normality just a little white ride <laughs> just just a wee ride ride well lucy it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you thank you so always, much always keep up the good work keep on you know going with those little cycle rides and maybe <laughs> i'd love to chat some more in the future so maybe we can have you back on at some point well i'm intrigued to see what this podcast turns into so i will definitely be a listener yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued as well. I have no idea. <laughs> That's the best way. But the best journey is you don't really have a destination in mind, I don't no. think. Follow your nose. Be open to what your heart says. Yeah, and meet interesting people. Absolutely. Right, Lucy, thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Luke. Bye. Bye.